This is Dot. And this is Lindsay. And you're listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people about the manuscripts they love the most. Today we're talking to Brandon Hawk. Brandon is Associate Professor of English at Rhode Island College, and he has particular research interests in medieval literature and apocrypha. In addition to this scholarly work, he's published on the Middle Ages in pop culture, in posts on his website, and in various other forums. I actually met Brandon in about 2018, I think, when we collaborated on a series of videos comparing manuscripts from Star Wars The Last Jedi with existing medieval manuscripts from Penn's collection. I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. Hi, Brandon. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's exciting to have you here. So we're not going to talk about Star Wars today, sadly. I guess we could. We kind of have to a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. Um, So what are we going to talk about? I'd love to talk about the Vercelli book, which is my favorite manuscript. Okay. Tell us about the Vercelli book. I know I know a little bit about it. I don't know if Lindsay knows anything about the Vercelli I, book. I looked it up before we came to record just to get a handle on it, and I'm very interested to learn more. Great. Okay, so the Vercelli book is a collection of Old English literature. It was compiled probably right around 975, certainly not much later than, you know, 980 or 990. It's one of the earliest surviving full books of Old English literature that we have. And so it's right up there with things like the Beowulf Codex, uh, with uh, the Exeter Book of Poetry. I often joke that I think it's the most important book from early England, especially for vernacular literature, because it doesn't have just one type of literature in it. So although we have the Exeter Book and we have the uh, Beowulf Manuscript, Um, which does have some other texts in it. The reason why I think the Vercelli book is so important is because it has a kind of mishmash of literature. Um, It has poems and prose sermons, uh, and the poems are kind of interleaved within these sermons. And so all of it is ostensibly religious literature. All of it is from a Christian perspective, but um, the subjects and themes range all over the place from, you know, texts that you would expect from sermons like explications of the Gospels or uh, the sorts of things that you might be familiar with if you've ever attended church um, and heard homilies at the Mass. But then there are other sermons that are about body and soul and uh, the relationship between body and soul and the afterlife. Visions of heaven and hell are, are in some of these sermons. A couple of them have totally non-canonical content in them. So one of the sermons, um, sermon number six, is a partial translation of this text that I love called the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, which is all about Mary's life and Jesus's early childhood when he's doing things like taming dragons on their way to Egypt (laughs) and some other really interesting kinds of episodes. Um, Some of the poems are things like a poem called Andreas, which is the story about Andrew and Matthias, the apostles, who both have to go to this place called Myrmidonia, where these cannibals live. And uh, Matthias is sent there first to try to convert these cannibals on this island to Christianity. And he gets captured and locked up and they try to fatten him up in order to get him ready to eat. And then (laughs) God goes to Andreas and says, you've got to go rescue your friend. So then the rest of the story is about (laughs) Andrew having to go save him. Probably the most famous text in this manuscript is The Dream of the Rude, 
which mm-hmm. a lot of people are familiar with if they've taken a British literature survey or studied medieval literature, even just kind of brushed the surface. It's an absolutely beautiful poem that's a reflection on the crucifixion of Jesus completely from the first person perspective of the cross. And the cross talks about the crucifixion as if he's the one being crucified with Jesus. And so everything Jesus goes through, the cross sort of talks about also going through physically and emotionally. And it's really, you know, fantastic example of old English poetry. That gives you a sense of some of the contents of the manuscript. Yeah. I love The Dream of the Root. That's such a great poem, too, because one of the things that I remember, even from the first time I read it, is it's so visceral, very descriptive and very visceral. And you have like, he's like covered with gore, right? Because um, Jesus was was crucified. And so I was covered with his blood. And then the blood, I can't remember if it like turned into jewels, but like he goes back and forth between like, so... Yeah, that's a really that's a really good one. I I actually have a question about the the sermon because you said there's sermons and then there's the sort of poetry. Do the themes of the poems and the themes of the sermons like interact with each other? Does it look like there's organization in terms of that or is it just sort of a bunch of stuff thrown together? I think yes. Mm-hmm. There've been some really interesting kinds of questions about that and different suggestions have been posed by different scholars. One of the big ones is Eamon O'Carrigan, an Irish scholar of Old English literature, has looked at it and said a lot of it is about liturgy and especially around the cross and like devotional kinds of approaches to liturgical themes. The book isn't really laid out as if you could read it through the liturgical year necessarily, but it possibly could be. And so it's sort of interesting to think about moving through the manuscript or being able to pick up the manuscript and read it for certain feast days, even the ones that, like the poems, um, the things that might not strike us as necessarily the sort of thing you would preach. But the whole book seems to have a kind of focus on religious devotion in various ways. Another way to think about it, Mary Dockray Miller suggested that it's a book that was put together for personal devotion for a woman patron, um, whether that might have been perhaps somebody who was part of the nobility who could read, or perhaps somebody in a convent, perhaps a group of female monastics who uh, might have had this book created, or it might have even been created in a female monastic setting, possibly. We don't really know exactly what the most specific context of it would have been, except it probably was compiled in Canterbury. There were a couple of different groups of monastics living in Canterbury. And so it it could have been that it was created for a group of women. It could have been created for a single woman who wanted a kind of devotional book. One of the probably most apparent themes is the theme of body and soul, particularly a kind of eschatological focus in this manuscript. And even the texts that aren't necessarily explicitly eschatological in that they're, they're not like totally focused on death and dying and the afterlife. Those texts still deal with things about the body and soul. And one scholar, Amity Reading, has written a book where she suggests that the whole book is sort of bound together with the theme of considering body and soul. What does it mean to you know, reflect on body and soul now in the present as well as in the afterlife and in terms of eschatological ideas? So there are different ways that you could see the manuscript as coherent, but 
I think because there are so many ways to see it as coherent and because you can have sort of three or four different ways to read these texts together, I think it does point to that the compiler must have been thinking about how these texts fit together. Was it written by one scribe then? It's written by a single scribe. Of course, it might have been commissioned by somebody who told them what to write, but we only have the the hand of one single scribe through the whole thing. So what else what else would you like to talk about with regard to the Richelli book? Okay, so I've already mentioned uh, one of the things that I love is the mishmash of content. The other that I kind of implied or alluded to was in my response to your last question about how it's cohesive. But one thing that I love about it is the absolute unpretentiousness of it. It's a really not flashy manuscript. It's uh, it's not special at all in terms of like what certain manuscript scholars might be interested in it for. It has no illuminations whatsoever. It's about 12 inches by 8 inches big. Um, so it's a it's like notebook sized, right? It, it would have been portable. It has a, around 135 leaves, so it's not super thick. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of just the right size for a single person to be able to carry around, right? It could fit in like a satchel or something. Um, it, it's not the kind of thing that would sit on a lectern or the, like it's not like one of these giant Bibles that you'd have to have four people try to pick up and move, right? It's very practical. It only has a handful of slightly decorated initials, and they're only like pen flourishes and things. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the texts begin with just like an enlarged initial, and that, that's it. it. They aren't decorated. They aren't colored in any special way. Some of the texts begin without any change in appearance. So there are a couple of really beautiful kinds of decorated initials. One of them is on folio 106 verso, which is the beginning of the 19th sermon. And then another one is on page 112 recto, and that's for Sermon 21. But almost all of the other texts, I think all of the other texts, um, don't have this kind of decoration to them. And it's what, what's interesting to me is that these two sermons get these decorated initials at the beginnings, where you might expect the poetry to, from a, a modern perspective, it's like if you're going to decorate the beginning of a poem of a text, it makes more sense to do poetry, right? Because we love poetry, we fetishize poetry. Modern critics think poetry is like the pinnacle of literary <laughs> achievement, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> the scribe of the manuscript was like, no, we don't really like. We don't have to decorate the beginning of the Dream of the Rude. We don't have to de- decorate the beginning of Andreas. Um, Nope, we're going to decorate the beginning of these two sermons. I mean, for no apparent reason other than that they had some room on the page to do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually looking at the one right now on 106 Verso. You're looking at that one too, Lindsay? I am. Yeah, so this is, it's it's neat. There's like a little, like an animal face, like maybe some kind of lion or something. It's an M, right? So he's got like the two loops coming out of the top of his head, but then he's got things coming out of his mouth just decorations Mm -hmm. like little leaves i guess but what i'm interested in is the loop that's on the right it comes down onto the page and then there's like a knot in it and then it ends in a leaf but it's interacting with the text or not interacting with the text but like it looks to me like the initial must have been written first right 
and then the text has been written around it. Right. Clearly it's written around it. And this is interesting to me because I usually in, you know, when you, when we talk about like how manuscripts are made, usually you leave a space, you talk about like leaving a space for an initial, like an illuminated initial. And then you go back and you put it in, but clearly that is not what happened. They put the initial in first and then they wrote the text around it. And I think that is fascinating. And I, and I, I don't know if you know, Brandon, but I'd love to know if like, this is the way they did it at this time and place. Cause clearly this is not like 15th century France <laughs> when you were like writing, you know, like making books yeah. of hours, this is England in the, you know, the 10th century. No, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that surprises me too. So on the one hand, while it's like unpretentious and has no like special illuminations, like no gold leafing, <laughs> no images really, um, except for like these two initials, but uh, absolutely there are all of these other manuscripts from early England that follow Mm -hmm. the same kind of process that you see later where you write the text out and you leave room. If you, if you know there's going to be a historiated initial or there's going to be an illumination, then you leave that space. Right. And it's all planned out that way. This, this manuscript does seem really well planned out. Actually, there aren't like, there might be one or two moments where the scribe has to squeeze in an extra line but for the most part, I think the text sort of makes sense for the writing space and it's not like they have to try to come back and fit extra in. So it's interesting when you come across something like this where the scribe is not planning for the initial to be added, but he's just doing it. So it's almost as if in his planning, he was like, I'm just going to write these out, but I've got some room on the page. And this page is interesting because this is the very top of a page. Yeah, it's the very top. And a lot of the texts in this manuscript don't begin on a new page. A lot of them begin, there's a little bit of space from one text into the next. I'm intrigued by this, like you said, this not work in the initial. Yeah, isn't that fun? It strikes me as so similar to the kinds of knots that you see from Celtic designs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. One of the things that is really tricky with early English art is that it's in, it's basically in conversation with other art from around the British Isles. Mm-hmm. So like this whole Hiberno-Latin uh, kind of milieu for texts where we have like Celtic um, texts, Irish texts, um, maybe some early Welsh ideas are floating around and English texts and and Latin texts are all kind of circulating around the British Isles together. But then art is doing that too. Mm -hmm. And so you have these kinds of influences coming from Ireland into England and vice versa. And this strikes me very much like the knot work that's meant to depict the Trinity with like Mm -hmm. three like interwoven pieces. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really cool about the Vercelli book, I didn't intend to talk about this necessarily, but one of the cool things about it is, like I said, it's got all of these different um, types of texts in it. And some of the texts in the Vercelli book clearly are indebted to Irish literature. Mm-hmm. And Charles D. Wright has written a book about this um, back in the early 90s about the connections between Old English and Irish literature. And a lot of his case studies come out of the Vercelli book. And it's very clear that the sermons 
some of the sermons that are included in the Vercelli book, even though they were composed before and they come from other places, those Old English sermons must have been written based on some Irish ideas and Irish texts. And there's very clear overlap. So then when you see something like this initial that potentially has a connection to Irish or, or at least a kind of common artistic understanding between Ireland and England, it raises further possibilities. Did the compiler know that some of these texts were indebted to Irish literature? What was going on there? That's really intriguing. It's probably worth mentioning, too, in case there are people listening who aren't familiar with the history of the church in England, that the Celtic church, or the I guess the Irish church, was the church in England in the early centuries of um, the modern, or the I guess the common era. Yeah. So it it wasn't until five, five, 597 <laughs> that um, St. Augustine came over from, he was sent by Gregory the Great to come and quote unquote Christianize the English, although the English, you know, there was already this church. And then there followed the, that, I guess, a hundred years or, or something like that, of this sort of back and forth, like, which church is England going to follow? And then the, oh, what's the name of the, the meeting that they had? This was all, this is all from grad school. This is what I studied in grad school. <laughs> so this is a long time for me. Uh, but it was finally decided that they were going to follow the, the go with the Roman church. Right. But I think there were still this you know, vestiges of the Irish church. And so when we're talking about the Irish influence on, you know, England in, in this manuscript, it's not necessarily going back and forth across the channel. This is stuff that was already in England. And so I think that's, I think that's uh, fascinating. And I love that it's showing up here because that all happened in, you know, the sixth and seventh centuries. And now we're talking about 10th century, end of the 10th century, and you're still yeah. seeing uh, seeing this here. So that is really cool. And like Bede talks about the kind of tensions mm -hmm. in in the generation before him. He talks about the tensions between how the Irish observe things and how the Roman Church observes mm -hmm. things. And he, of course, sides with the Roman Church. And there right. there had been the Synod of Whitby, Whitby where they that's what I was thinking about. Writing. Yeah. What's interesting about that is by the time the Vercelli book gets written or compiled, the center of ecclesiastical momentum has shifted and there's a lot more going on in the South. Whereas in the earlier period, especially in Bede's time and before that, and basically up until the Vikings start their raids in the ninth century, really, well, even slightly before that, but um, essentially, the like big boom in religious writings and like the center of Christianity in England was really in Northumbria. Northumbria mm -hmm. was like the center, and that's why Bede was up there writing. And they had a lot closer connections with Ireland for all sorts of cultural reasons in that earlier period. And then by the 10th century, a lot of that has shifted to places like Canterbury and Worcester and, you know, Northumbria has kind of been <laughs> let go to the Vikings because they just can't keep fending off these Vikings coming in from Scandinavia up in the north anymore. So they, like the early English polity, just kind of shifts further south. But the reason I say all of that is because the Vercelli book, as much as it's a synthesis of all sorts of stuff, and I've tried to 
kind of hint at that already. A text like Dream of the Rood is probably a Northern poem. Mm -hmm. And part of the Dream of the Rood is inscribed in runes on this stone monument called the Rothel Cross, which is in the North, right? It's up right. now in, I think, in modern day Scotland. And it's really intriguing that that text part of the Dream of the Rood is inscribed on that stone monument in the north, and there are indications that the Dream of the Rood itself might have been a northern poem. And yet it's in this manuscript from much later, and the Dream of the Rood is probably the oldest thing in this manuscript. That poem is, is much older. We know that it was composed well before the 10th century, probably the 9th century, maybe the 8th century. And so you've got evidence of that kind of history of the English church in this manuscript too, the shift from north to south and the Celtic relationships and the, you know, the time that these things would have been composed from the Dream of the Rood all the way up to sermons that probably were composed not long before this manuscript was put together. So it's, it, it really does sort of pull together a whole bunch of interesting threads for the manuscript. That's very cool. So I thought of the other question that I wanted to ask you. You said a little bit about that, or that there was a theory that this book might have been compiled for a woman or for for a community of women. And I'm wondering if you can tell me more, tell us more about like what exactly that argument is. Like, what is it about the book that makes you think that this is, this is something that could be true? Cause I love, I love that idea. I do too. I, I think it's a really convincing kind of argument. Part of the argument is that there are quite a few texts in the manuscript that are actually interested in women. I didn't mention it when I was discussing the contents, but one of the one of the poems in this manuscript is called Elena, and it's a poem all about Constantine's mother, Helen, going to the Holy Land into Jerusalem and finding the true cross and digging it up. It, it's a really interesting text and really complicated text, especially for modern readers, because what she has to do when she gets to the Holy Land is interrogate the Jews who are living there. And essentially tortures one of them into giving her information about where the cross is that Jesus was crucified on. So it has some really problematic and deep anti-Semitic stuff in it that is really worth thinking through. But it also has like a central focus on a woman and a woman in power. So it gets really complicated. But other, there are plenty of other texts in this manuscript that are really interested in women. And not just like women in the world, but also questions of gender. Like with these body and soul poems, the question of the body being kind of stylized as male and the soul being stylized as female and what's the interaction there. And there are obviously the text about Pseudo-Matthew. Their translation from Pseudo-Matthew is focused on Mary. There are some penitential texts and other texts in the manuscript that indicate that there's some gender stuff going on. One of the texts, I think it's, yeah, I, I won't remember the exact sermon number. Um, one of them, though, is a text that's based on a really scathing sermon by this early Christian author named John Chrysostom. And the scathing sermon has to do with women 
adorning themselves and putting on oils and unguents and things like that and uh, mm-hmm. how wrong that is and how bad it is and again there's some anti-judaism in that text where he's like don't be like the jews who do this stuff women should be like this and this and it's really deeply racist in its anti-semitism and also super super misogynist in the way that it talks about women but it indicates that the, the compiler included that that sermon because they wanted someone to read a sermon about how women should act right there's another text about for the purification of mary and some some other um kinds of interesting gender issues throughout the manuscript now that could be coincidence we don't really know exactly what a scribe in the late 10th century was thinking about gender or if they had concerns about gender like we do clearly they had some concerns about gender issues like how men and women should act and obviously things like purity and asceticism virginity you know all the sort of like classics of christianity and and sort of rules around bodies right yeah whether or not the scribe was intentionally putting these texts together because they happen to deal with gender, we can't know really, but it does seem like there are some gendered questions driving some of these texts or at least embedded in some of these texts. And so I think it is really likely that womanhood is one of those questions that's built into the manuscript and would have appealed to a kind of female monastic or a woman reader of some sort. I guess that brings me to one of the other things I love about this manuscript, though, which is the mystery of why it's in Vercelli, Italy. This this was the question yes. I would I've been waiting for you to answer because <laughs> that is because yes, how on earth did this book make it and when and how? Tell us all. <laughs> it's so wild. I mean, we, we call it the Vercelli book, but there are hundreds of manuscripts in Vercelli at the Cathedral Library where this one is held. In fact, they haven't really ever been fully cataloged. And so dealing with Vercelli's manuscripts is pretty tricky because there's no modern um, printed catalog of all of them. There have been a few that have come out, but this one obviously has held attention for, you know, the last 150 years, more than that now, actually, since it was quote unquote discovered. And like it was part of, part of it was published early on by Jakob Grimm. And, um, it has since developed all of this attention by scholars of old English literature but why is it in Italy? It's really weird um, because most of the manuscripts from early England still survive in England. Um, a lot of them, of course, were destroyed when Henry VIII started dissolving the monasteries and burning books. And, you know, that was not fun. So we know there are a lot of books that are, are gone, but a lot of the ones that do survive from early England still are in England. And we have quite a few of them from the continent, but they're usually places that we understand to have close connections with England. Monasteries in France, for example, or modern day Germany, like Würzburg, where there would have been a lot of movement back and forth. So this is the this is the big question with the Vercelli book is why is there a, an English manuscript? There are no Latin texts in this manuscript at all. It's all written in Old English. 
so it would have been useless to anyone in Italy. They wouldn't have known how to read this thing. But we know that by the end of the 11th century, this text was in Vercelli because there are a couple of marginal annotations in it. One of the marginal annotations actually says something to the effect of a book in an unknown language or something like that. <laughs> and so we know these these people at Vercelli who had this book were like, we can't use this thing. It's useless to us. And yet they never disbound it. They never like turned it into a palimpsest. They never wiped yeah. it in to try to reuse it. They just kept it on their shelves. Thankfully, they never decided that it was worthless, even though it was useless to them. It was valuable in some way, and they kept it around. I don't have an answer for how it got to Vercelli, but there are some really intriguing kinds of suggestions that have been made. The one suggestion that's been made um, was made by Kenneth Sizem in the early 20th century, and it's the one a lot of people fall back on. It doesn't really have a, a whole lot of backing to it other than circumstantial evidence. But his suggestion was that this book could have been taken from England on a trip like a pilgrimage. To get from England to Rome, somebody would have had to go right by or through Vercelli. So they would have come from England down into France, and then to get to Rome, Vercelli would have been a natural spot on the pilgrimage route. It might have even been a spot for them to stop. It would have been a natural place for a group of people making a pilgrimage to Rome to, you know, stop at the cathedral library or the cathedral or the monasteries there. And Sizem sort of spins out this speculative argument about how the book got left there, that possibly somebody got ill and then mm. died, and then the book just ends up staying there. It's an intriguing one. With the argument about this book possibly being for a woman, Mary Dockray Miller spins this out and says, we know plenty of women went on pilgrimage from England to Rome. It wasn't just mm -hmm. men, right? It was nobles of all sorts, and women would have been among them. Even ecclesiastical women, women involved in monasteries or whatever, might have made pilgrimages from England to Rome. So it's equally possible that a priest or a monk or a bishop or a noble man would have taken this book with them on a journey and would have left it in Vercelli for whatever reason. It's just as plausible that a woman would have done that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's sort of it. <laughs> that's that's amazing. I had no idea that it was so early that it was there by the 11th century, but I guess, you know, that's maybe it even makes more sense. The pilgrimage argument is really convincing that that, that must have been yeah. how it how it happened, just an accident. It's only 100 years, around 100 years after this thing was compiled, it ends up mm -hmm. in Italy. Of course, by the end of the 11th century, a lot of other stuff is going on in England that mm -hmm. means that Old English manuscripts are not really being produced the same way. That's true, yeah. Old English continues to survive. There are Old English, mm -hmm. there are manuscripts of Old English that continue to be written up to 1200 and even beyond 1200. Mm -hmm. um, so even after the Norman conquest in 1066, Old English is still continuing to get copied all over the place. So there are plenty of pieces of evidence and books that, that have Old English in them beyond that. And a lot of manuscripts do move to the continent in that period. For example, 
English folks leaving England because they can't abide living under Norman rule, or perhaps even would have been exiled. There's one bishop who, his name was Bishop Sewald. He was essentially forced to go into exile, and he takes a group of his books to the continent with him. And essentially because he was ousted from being bishop and the Normans would have, would have put a Norman bishop in his place. So books move that way too, but not really like to Italy. <laughs> yeah, Italy seems like a long way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when did this book really get noticed? Since it's sitting around in Italy in a language nobody knows... Yeah, in the mid-19th century, some German philologist, I, I don't remember exactly who um, off the top of my head, but a German philologist was poking around in manuscript libraries and came across this one and then wrote to some friends saying like, oh, this book seems to be in a Germanic language. And then, like I said, Jakob Grimm publishes some of it. And then from that point on, then other German philologists interested in Old English got wind of it and started studying it. And then by by the turn of the 20th century, it was pretty well known, mostly for the poetry. And the poetry had been edited several times by the early 20th century, particularly The Dream of the Rude and Andreas and Elena, which are the big ones. And then there are some other shorter poems. And Fates of the Apostles, which is um, actually that one I didn't mention yet. It's really interesting because that poem, Fates of the Apostles, is by a poet that we know whose name is Kinnewolf. And Kinnewolf wrote a group of poems that are scattered through different manuscripts, but we know they're all his, or at least by a circle of poets calling themselves Kinnewolf, who all have the same style, um, if you want to be really skeptical about a single poet. But we know they're all his because he, uh, at the end of each one of these poems that have been ascribed to him, he writes like lines of poetry that embed runes that if you sort them out, all spell out Kinnewolf. Uh, so they're like these, yeah, they're basically these like enigmatic riddles that sign his poems as his. And Fates of the Apostles is one of his. So people were really interested in, in that because they were interested in basically one of the only named authors we have from early England, right? And certainly one of the only poets that we can say wrote some poetry and actually has a name. And we don't know much about him beyond that, except that he must have been pretty well educated. And he really liked religious literature because he uses lots of religious Latin sources and all of his poems are religiously themed. But other than Kinnewolf, the only other author who we know composed Old English literature is Cadman, who be talks about with Cadman's hymn. So Kinnewolf is important, and this manuscript began to be seen as important for that reason. You asked when it began to be noticed, though, Lindsay, and what's interesting is it was noticed for the poetry, but up until much later on, people did not care about the sermons, which I find utterly fascinating, and that's how I found the manuscript was from an interest in Old English sermons. A German scholar named Max Furster first published some of the sermons, um, about half of them. But then it wasn't until the 1970s that the other half were edited by a scholar named Paul Sharmack. But he only edited the, the ones that Furster hadn't edited. And so then 
A full edition actually wasn't published until 1992, when a scholar who's worked a ton on sermons, and especially on the Vercelli sermons, Don Scragg, he edited the entire set of Vercelli sermons, the Vercelli homilies. And so it's only been in the last 30 years or so that we've had a full, like, major critical edition of those texts. And nobody has ever ever edited the entire Vercelli book contents altogether. The poems have been published a bunch of times, the sermons have been published now, but nobody's ever put out an entire full edition, digital or print, of the entire manuscript. So it's always only been like available to scholars in kind of fragmented nature, which is why I think that there, you know, some of these studies that have been done to consider the whole book and how the whole thing fits together, the poems and the sermons and what kinds of coherence we see across them, what themes, what common language, what common ideas and and style we see across them all. Those have been really important, but those kinds of studies have only emerged in the last 20, 25 years or so. Um, and, and scholars like Elaine Traharn and Mary Dockray Miller and Samantha Zacker and Amity Reading have all published these studies that now get us to think about how the Vercelli book works on a deeper level. But that still has, that, that's raised a bunch of questions that still have yet to be answered. That's amazing that it's just been in the last 30 years that we've gone deep into right. this thing. Wow. And I think that the way that it has been treated isn't unusual. Like people who are doing the work are scholars who trained in particular elements and are homed in various departments. So it makes sense that you would have, there's a group of people over here who are interested in the poetry because that's what they do. Mm -hmm. And then another group of people over here who are interested in the sermons because that's what they do. And so they're over here. And then you have manuscript studies right? where that's where when you, when you begin to think about it within the context of the physical manuscript and say, okay, so here's poetry and that's fine. And here's sermons and that's fine. But they were put in this thing, somebody, one person, there's one scribe copied these out. And then you can start thinking about the why, why are these things together? And, you know, I think, not to be critical of these, you know, of these people in the past who edited the thing separately, but really it's good, it's considering them together as a unit that's really going to bring the value to the scholarship. I think. I don't know. What do you think, Brandon? I totally agree. I, I think we can be critical of them. Okay. <laughs> you know, particularly like particularly those scholars who focused on the poetry without focusing on the other contexts. Because I think the best way to understand the poetry in the Vercelli book is to acknowledge and read the sermons and see what else is going on in that manuscript. And for that matter, some of the sermons in this manuscript actually have poetry embedded in them or poetic language. Mm -hmm. Sermons 2 and 21 both share a lot of the same content, Sermon 21 seems to be an adapted copy of Sermon 2. Mm-hmm. And there's poetry embedded in those sermons. And that poetry has been pointed out by people who went to the manuscript to study the sermons and noticed that there's this alliterative, 
rhythmic kind of quality to these sermons. And then when they studied it, they realized this is poetic language being embedded into these sermons. Now, what's really cool about that is that's led other people to focus on the language of the sermons. And um, Samantha Zacker wrote an entire book about the style of the Vercelli sermons. Mm -hmm. And she's been able to essentially argue that the rhetoric and the style and you know, a lot of the elements of the sermons are actually quite poetic on their own. They may not be Old English poetry, but they're dealing with the kinds of rhetorical devices that we think of when we think of really intentional literary compositions. Things like envelope patterns and alliteration and poetic imagery and other classical rhetorical devices. Um, a syndeton, etc., right? And deeply metaphorical and figurative language. And so on the one hand, the folks who studied this manuscript only for the poetry really missed out. On the other hand, there's now this burgeoning scholarship that's pointing out that the sermons themselves are worth studying. Mm -hmm. And so we get this really cool interaction there. And I I think that's really valuable. And Dot, I think to your point, of course, it makes sense that some people would specialize and focus on certain things. But I think the Vercelli book is like the perfect case study for an argument for interdisciplinarity and Mm -hmm. for manuscript scholars and literary scholars and folks who work on religious studies and folks who work on historical contexts and paleography and codicology and poetry and prose, all of those specializations coming together because that's the only way to understand this single book is to be able to try to work from and collaborate with others who have that kind of specialist knowledge. So it takes a, it takes a village <laughs> to parse a manuscript that was apparently written by one person. I love that. Or not yeah. written, probably not written by one person, you know. Is there anything else you want to tell us about the Rocelli book? Well, I guess to that point about a, a book, um, this is just a kind of fun fact. And I would love for people to like fact check me on this and, and dot because you know manuscripts better and you work with manuscripts. One thing that I think is really cool is a couple of years ago, I taught a course on the Vercelli book for our master's students. And we just read through the whole thing in translation. It was really fascinating. But we had a lot of focus on the manuscript itself. And I wanted to build that into the course. And they had lots of questions. And at one point, we were talking about how valuable manuscripts were compared to like modern books, which you can buy a paperback, read it, and then toss it out without thinking hard about, you know, the five or $10 you spent on it. I wouldn't do that. I love my books too much. But books to us are just a, you know, an everyday thing and we take them for granted. And we had a lot of conversations about that. And here's where I come around to the fun fact. My students were really interested in how much manuscripts took to make, how much time and energy and even the value and cost. So I once calculated for them, we, we like sat down and tried to figure out what would this book cost to make? And I went on, um, you know, Pergamena's website where you can buy modern parchment And we looked up the costs of different pieces of parchment. And based on modern costs, we calculated how many leaves would be needed for this whole thing. 
And what we found was just the book as a material thing would have cost mm-hmm. around $20,000 in modern mm-hmm. resources to make. And then we didn't calculate that was just the book right. without a binding. And we didn't even calculate how much the cost of a scribe's labor scribe would be. Mm-hmm. The, I was going to say, what about the labor? That's going right. to add a lot to it. Yeah. yeah. And of course, like a, if it were most likely copied by a monk, because this is before professional scribes sort of emerge onto the scene mm-hmm. in Western Europe. So he wouldn't have gotten paid anyway. He's, he's just getting paid by God to live in his monastery <laughs> right, and have food and things. So like the labor would be astronomical though, right? It would yeah. take weeks, possibly take weeks. months to yeah. copy out a manuscript of around 135 leaves, right? And so that's a, that's a lot of work. It would take a while, yeah. And I, I just really love thinking about that question of like, what a book like this, what is the value of something like the Vercelli book? And obviously to me, it's totally invaluable. Um, if I could own a single book in the world, it would probably be the Vercelli book. If somebody just asked me, what single book could you own that's an original copy? It would be this. Um, but but even the cost value of it is really wild to think through. And that's with, like I've said, an unpretentious manuscript that doesn't have any decorations or not a lot of artistic imagery or anything other than just the text on the page. I do think as I'm thinking about it, the, the one difference would be the economy of the parchment. Right. So if you made it, so if you made it today, yes, you'd have to go to Pergamina to like buy the parchment, but it's more likely at, you know, at this time and probably throughout the middle ages, I guess until up, up till later in the middle ages, Mm -hmm. you know, the, if they're at a monastery, there's probably some sort of farming right. happening. So there's probably cows yeah. there and they may have, you know, all, a system in place to get the parchment. So That's they're not right. paying so much. Yeah. But I'm not surprised at all yeah. to hear that doing it today would be $20,000. And even at that time, it would have been, I mean, parchment was valuable. Like you see how yeah. people treat parchment and how you can, you can sometimes judge uh, one of the ways that you can sort of judge um, the the quality of a book in terms of how much it costs is how large the margins are. Right. You know, like um, yeah. like this book. We'll up. We'll I'll put some photos up so you can see. But the text is quite small, and it goes from not all the way from from edge to edge, but it covers most of the page. So yeah. clearly, they're saying they're like we're going to use. And the fact also you mentioned that the texts start and end on the same pages right so it's not like you finished a text and then you left the rest of the page blank you were not doing that um and you also mentioned earlier that it wasn't it is actually pretty amazing that it sat on the shelf in Vercelli and wasn't reused because parchment is is often re if you have a book that nobody's using it gets cut to pieces and washed off and maybe used to make another book or used in, in bindings and, and, and that. And so, yeah, parchment was not something that you wasted at all because it was expensive. 20,000 seems totally reasonable to me. Right. Yeah. And this, I mean, one of the other ways that we know whether a book was more valuable or not is the type of parchment used, right? Yes. This one is on calf vellum, 
which mm-hmm. is pretty different from some that are on like goat or yeah. uh, cow, right? Um, yeah. Adult cows. So th- this one actually does have really nice parchment. And we're, I'm going to put a link to the digital Vercelli book, Vercelli book, which is not actually a complete yet, a complete edition of the, right. of the manuscript, but it's got parts, parts of it there. And importantly, it has the pages digitized. Yes. So we'll be able to look at that. And it does have some of the texts that have been considered more important are there. And they're edited both in diplomatic and modern interpretive versions, like The Dream of the Rude. And that can be really helpful to look at when you have the page on one side of the screen and then the diplomatic transcription of it into modern font and then you can switch over to the interpretive which gives you like the way that we can read this as modern scholars so it's cool that it has those kind of multiple levels built into the digital facsimile edition it's a really usable site cool Lindsay, do you have any final questions for Brandon? Well, there are, all, there are two questions that I always want to ask every guest. And one is, how did you get into what you're doing? And the other is, if you could spend time with any manuscript that you haven't met yet, what would it be? I got into my love for the Vercelli book, um, my first semester in my master's program, um, I showed up at the University of Connecticut um, as a master's student thinking that I was going to study things like Germanic religion and its manifestations in Old English literature. I was really interested in things like the role of fate or weird in Beowulf uh, and other Old English literature. I had read things like The Dream of the Rude and really loved some of the religious syncretism that was in some of the poetry, even in Beowulf, where we, it's a poem about like past pre-Christian times, but then you have like these poetic digressions that are about the creation of the world and, you know, narrative kinds of um, interjections about Christianity and things like that. So I was interested in that. And I was really interested in like the dream of the rude because it had like this Germanic warrior ethos, but then Christian elements. And so I was interested in the interplay between religious ideas in Old English poetry. And I took my first semester of Old English with uh, Tom Jambeck. And one of the things that I discovered was Old English sermons. And we translated a couple of different Old English sermons, including um, the Sermo Lupi by Wolfstan, which is this like scathing apocalyptic kind of like we've let all of these things happen in our country and we've slid down into sin. And now that's why these Vikings are invading us and it's coming to the end of the world, etc. And I was like, Whoa, this is really fascinating stuff. And pretty early on, just by doing some research on what sermons exist from early England, I discovered the Vercelli book. Then in my second year of my, the master's degree, Bob Hassenfratz, another old English scholar at UConn, offered a course on the Vercelli book. And this was really exciting because at that point I had already gone and done some research and read some of this this stuff on my own. 
One of the connections that we had talked about when I had taken a Beowulf seminar was connections between Beowulf and some of the Vercelli sermons. For example, in Vercelli Sermon 9, there's a whole scene that's about hell, and it's a description of hell and about these sinners hanging over the pit of hell. And it's directly analogous, even in language, it's parallel to the scene in Beowulf when they go to Grendel's mirror after Beowulf has killed Grendel and the mother has taken revenge. And they go and they're looking down into this pit where Beowulf eventually goes to fight Grendel's mother. And down to the language, there's this description. And it, it, the language in Beowulf is the same language in Vercelli 9 w- with this description of the hellscape, right? And wow. so I had already been familiar with some of these connections. And then when I took this class on the Vercelli book, I very early on in that semester realized that this is what I wanted to study. And I decided then that that's exactly what I wanted to write my uh, dissertation on. So then when I got into the PhD, I just continued that work. And I've just continued going back to the Vercelli book over the years. Um, I knew I wanted to write on these sermons. And the Vercelli book is like one of the most important places for it. And so I've, I've continued to just go back to and read and work on these things. And they are endlessly fascinating for me, um, particularly with their connections to non-canonical apocryphal material. And so that that's where I got my love for the Vercelli book. Your second question about which book I would want to spend time with, I've never actually been able to go to Vercelli and my hands on the Vercelli book. I did see the Vercelli book in January 2019 when the British Library had their big Anglo-Saxon Kingdoms exhibit where they brought all of these manuscripts back to England that were far flung, right? And they all were at the British Library. And I knew this was a a once-in-a-lifetime thing, And I decided to go and I flew over there just for a few days in early January between semesters. And I I went through the exhibit um, a couple of times. I spent a couple different days there. And the first time I remember walking through and, and just being in awe of these manuscripts, you know, the Cuthbert Bible and the Codex Amiatinus, this huge Bible, and all of these different artifacts and manuscripts from early England. And then I remember turning the corner and seeing the display case where they had the four manuscripts that have all of the major poetry. And it's the Beowulf Codex. It's the Exeter Book of Poetry. It's the Vercelli Book and the Junius Manuscript, which has biblical poetry in it. And I remember turning the corner and seeing this display case and just being absolutely overwhelmed at seeing these things together and just standing there staring. And they had the page open in the Vercelli book to the Dream of the Rood. And I just started crying. I was so... It it was amazing. And I couldn't touch them. I couldn't do anything other than gaze upon the the pages of these manuscripts. But it was such an experience for me. I would still love to go to Vercelli. I'd love to actually sit down with the manuscript in front of me and be able to leaf through it and be able to really look at it and be able to actually read through its contents in person. 
Oh, I hope that happens for you someday. And I have to say, I started tearing up listening to you describing that experience. That's just, that's so wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you. It still gets me every time I think about it. I'm like, oh man, I I know it will be an experience that I remember for the rest of my life (laughs) in such emotional terms. That's so good. Well, I think that is a really, that's a really good place to place to close our conversation. So thank you, Brandon. This was great. I know so much more about the Bricelli book than I, than I did before. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both Dot and Lindsay. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Our website is insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, and there you'll find posts for all our episodes and a link where you can contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.